Welcome to the Wordy Pair Podcast, your go-to hub for all things writing, world building, and the occasional dive into the weird and wonderful world of fiction. We're breaking down the barriers between you and your next great story. Whether you're a seasoned scribe or just scribbling your first sentences, we've got something for you. We'll be discussing everything from crafting compelling characters to dissecting the good, the bad, and the downright bizarre in the world of fiction. Okay, this script says you guys are eccentric. Isn't that just a three-syllable word for weird no offense so whether you're in need of inspiration a good laugh or just a couple of weirdos to keep you company on your writing journey you're in the right place thanks for tuning in to the wordy pair podcast So, welcome to the fourth episode of the Wordy Pair Podcast. I am Rudy. And Justin. And we are going to be talking, we're going to be starting out talking about uh, some influences. So, uh, you said you had a good idea for this, so what do you got? Well, just, just kind of give an idea of, you know, the simplest places that influences can come from. I was just recently writing a story. I sent you that little picture, the screen cap of what I was writing. Yes. I, I did this little number where it was, uh, it's supposed to be a character that can't talk because she's a siren, mm-hmm. but she can sing, and that's the only way that she can actually communicate. Right. And they, they needed to use her power to sing to kind of, like, calm down a crowd. Okay. So she busts out in the first thing that she can think of, which ends up being a commercial jingle. Right. And, of course, it does the trick, because anything would basically work. Uh, and, and that's, that's the joke. And, uh, there, there was actually an inspiration for that joke. Okay. Uh, it had popped into my head while working. And, and this is just to give an idea of like where inspirations can come from. It can just be completely out of left field sometimes and you'll get an idea for a whole story out of it. Sure. Uh, I remembered the episode of an anime called Kanagi where they're all doing karaoke and everyone sings their songs and then the main character gets up on the stage, grabs the microphone, and she starts singing a commercial jingle. Yeah. And I thought, oh, I could turn that into a joke for something. And so I tried to think of what characters I had that that might apply to. And of course, the siren was the natural one. Sure, that makes sense. So so that's, uh, so, so we're not talking about, oh, what what grand epic that I read inspired this entire thing that I did from start to finish. We're talking about, you know, like, what are the things that inspire the littlest things that you come up with? Oh, sure. Okay. I, I like it. All right. Yeah, I mean, I have the same experience in, in the sense that, I mean, like, usually what'll happen is that I'll be, like, sitting and I'll be reading something, and there'll be a topic that comes up, and I'll think... It might be interesting to have a have a like a like a unique take on this topic, and and so maybe that usual that, that kind of thing will will create the uh, the seed for a story for me. My my uh, AI story uh, Otopos is uh, is an example of that. I was reading everybody freaking out about AI over and over again, and I was like, well, well let's 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 de- let's dive into this a little bit and make 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 some kind of a narrative out of it, and I think that's one of my. Uh, stories that I kind of enjoyed. It's a little preachy near the end, but uh, 
has an interesting has an interesting arc to it. Uh, that was the one with the with the box, right? Yes. Okay. Um. Yeah, I'll, I'll avoid spoiling that one, but I wasn't sure if that was the. I don't remember it being preachy at the end. It. It. I mean. I mean, it's a little bit, but it's it's not crazy. I didn't deliberately design it to be preachy, like my uh, like like the uh the preachy Crusoe, is... like, like Crusoe wept. That one is des- that one is des- deliberately preachy. Yeah. As yeah, an no, exercise. No. Preachy is supposed to be a bit more beating you over the head with it than what happened in your AI story. Yes, but you know, some it, it's 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 a question of perception. I I would imagine that someone might perceive that as preachy if they really dug into it. But you know, who knows? And I am now one hundred percent fully influenced on uh, writing a story that is nothing but us being distracted over and over again from our topic. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're we're on topic. This is the, we're talking about influences and and inspirations. That's fine. Yeah. No, I'm just, I'm uh, I was I was influenced to give a joke. I don't uh, know. Uh, there, <laughs> there's probably a better joke in there. I'll, I'm going the bad route for this one. You're you're on the renegade. Yeah. Renegade path. Renegade path. Um, yeah. Oh, but but there's there's so many simple things that because like okay, so you mentioned Terry Pratchett before we started talking about this, and he is. Definitely number one. Uh, he 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 is the biggest inspiration. My he's he's the reason I'm writing because my my writing started when I was about. Uh, I, I'd always been doing it, but I didn't really start doing it until I was about fifteen, when uh, the I played the Discworld game for PlayStation. Yeah. And after playing it, I was like, "This game is really funny." And then I found out that it was created by well. You know, it was a property of an author, and I was like, well, I like Douglas Adams. This guy sounds like he writes stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I picked up my first Terry Pratchett book, read it in one sitting, and said, I want to write books. I had never read anything like it before, and I, I really haven't read much like it since. And I mean, Pratchett is a is a very uh, unique and and wonderful writer. He's... He manages to to stick humor and satire and darn good stories all in like these tiny little books, and he does a good job. An amazing yeah, and job. he he really sticks out even more so I thought than like Douglas Adams, and so I was like, I want to write things that stick out. I want to do the yeah, same thing. Douglas Adams is a lot drier, is the yeah. thing. So th- th- there, there's funny things in Douglas Adams, but they're kind of like the thing that you laugh to at yourself, you know, under your own breath kind of thing. Whereas Terry Pratchett has some real laugh-out-loud howlers, at least a couple in each book. Yeah, and and he does great characters. He's got oh, my yeah, favorite absolutely. characters of any books. Uh, I, I mean, it's like, I can't think of a series of books where there's really... There's a lot of, like, uh, you know, singular characters that stick out more than others. Like, we both like Nero Wolf. Yeah. And, you know, he he's up there with, you know, the best of Terry Pratchett's characters. But yeah, he, that that was that was the single biggest influence to my writing is that I wanted to do things that were, you know, most of what I do I try to be funny with, and yeah. I try to make it weird enough or strange enough to where it really sticks out, and like you you really can't necessarily tell where the story is going. Even even when even when I'm writing something where it's obvious where it's going, I like to just make everything in between where it's going and where you are so strange that it's just like, how, how are they getting there? Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, something that I like about Terry Pratchett's characters is that they're like, they're half serious. That 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 
the characters will have their characters will have some funny characteristics like um like I I think of like the librarian right the he got turned into an orangutan and decided that he likes being an orangutan better than being a human so he just stays that way but you know he at the same time he gets he occasionally gets involved in fairly serious plot points and the fact that he is an orangutan is leverage to make both like make the results both work and be funny at the same time yeah and he's just he's just one of the uh one of the many characters that are really kind of strange in their surroundings and yet they're they're presented as just this is your main character for the story. I mean, he's yeah. he's had death as a main character in several stories. Well, I mean, his his death character became kind of a phenomenon, honestly. Yeah. Like, it's I, the I, most I, iconic death character in media. It, it, it's it's not just the most iconic, but it's the most imitated. Yeah, uh, I've actually it's... done several imitations. <laughs> <laughs> I have. Uh, I did a character, a death character that is. An incredibly lazy member of the Death family that doesn't really do her job properly and carries around a cell phone and gets distracted easily and is afraid of things for no reason because there's nothing that she should be afraid of because she's Being death. death. Yeah. And I also used a... I, I created another character that was supposed to be kind of uh, an idiot version of Death in one of my mystery stories where she can't directly help the detective... But the yeah. detective is kind of like tricking her into giving her answers. Sure, sure, yeah. That so, way... so I liked playing around with the uh, the idea of having a character that represented death in my stories, and that came directly from Terry Pratchett. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But Terry Pratchett even expanded, and now you know the death character has a whole family and all that stuff. So yeah, and I mean that was uh... well, I mean that was in the first. Uh book where he was well he wasn't a main character in Mort but he was a pretty prominent character because there was this there was this early phase of Terry Pratchett where it was like more uh it was like darker fantasy uh it, it was it was always humorous but you know he went from this dark fantasy setting where his city Ankh-Morpork, Pork was a place where you basically go to die like Detroit or something yeah and you know there's lots of danger around every corner and and death was actually you know, he was actually death where it was just like, this is my job, I've got to... He he would just appear in some of the stories uh, to kind of give the characters a shake-up. And in the in one of the early stories, you know, Rincewind, the wizard, was at Death's home. Yeah. And he was being chased by Death's daughter, his adopted daughter. And he had to, he had to escape before she, you know, cut off his lifeline and killed him. Mm-hmm. And they they went he kind of got away from that tone, which I always liked better. I thought that was his best stuff, but he he got away from that tone and made it more sort of large adventures with uh with characters that were more human than less in most cases. Like death became a much more human character as those yeah, stories went on. I mean, there, death becoming a more human character was the subject of an entire book. So yeah. It, it was. It's not like it was. It's not like it happened suddenly or or was un. It was like was it was like out of nowhere. It, it was. It was something that he deliberately. Oh yeah, he did, he shifted so. the tone very deliberately. Like like Ankh-Morpork became a much cleaner and more respectable city after his books about the guards actually cracking down on crime. Yeah. So uh, so we've got, you know, we've got our big influences like that. Um, what about some of any, any direct ones that you've got to talk about? Because I can think of about a million on my side. I, I mean, you know, I'm a I'm a huge reader of Rex Stout. Just 
constant. I probably go through two Rex Stout books a week on average, and which, which is which is awesome. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, he he wrote enough of them that you can just kind of put them in a rotation and just keep going around and around and around, and you never really get tired of it. Yeah, that, that's how I treated Terry Pratchett's books for a long time. I, I just someone just asked about books that uh, you've read a lot. I think I've read I've read Witches Abroad thirty seven times now, <laughs> and I don't see any reason not to read it again. It's my favorite book. Yeah, it's a good one. I, I mean, I think everything Terry Pratchett put out is. Uh, is excellent. Uh, I, I don't think I've ever read anything from him that I found unsatisfying in some way. Yeah, the only thing that... Like, his later books I didn't enjoy as much as his early books, but I still loved them. The only thing I felt uh, kind of had a tapering off were the the ones that he wrote for, like, younger readers, like uh, the... Well, what was her name? I can't remember the witch's name. Which witch? The youngest... Tiffany. Tiffany Aching. Oh. Uh, who was apprenticed to my favorite character in all of literature, Granny Weatherwax. But yeah. I think part of that was just that I was reading a book where I wanted more of Granny Weatherwax, and I kept getting Tiffany aching, and I just... <laughs> I, it was it was just hard for me to accept. <laughs> yeah, no, I can understand that. You, you know, you, you've got the character that you like, and they're playing a, a secondary role in that book. I, I mean, she still played a big role. It was just, it, it was just like, I, I kind of wished that he would write one more book with Granny Weatherwax instead of focusing on Tiffany Aching. But to be fair, having written a lot of stuff now, I know how that can happen. Mm-hmm. Where you feel like you, you don't really have anything for that character at this moment, so you move on to another character. Yeah. And I mean, that, 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 that works out really well in general, because you, you create a character, and then you create another character that interacted with that character, and it helps you, you know, kind of branch the story out. Yeah, and it's it's something that especially if you like creating characters. I mean, I'm I'm almost up to two thousand characters at this point, and I just don't I I don't stop. I see something that I'm like that would make a good character for a story, and then I get a character in a story, and then I'm like, how do I make them interact with all my older characters? Uh, so it's just like you're constantly wanting to make new things, and mm-hmm. it is absolutely amazing how often you'll see something and just be like, well, there's a new character I have to write. That's I'm pretty much stuck with it. Can't do anything about it. I don't write the rules. <laughs> I don't make the rules. I just keep writing constantly. But not yeah. rules. Non-rule things. Characters. <laughs> and it's almost like annoying yourself, because sometimes you're like, I really want to go back and write something with these other characters that I have. And, yeah. But but I'm in the middle of this new thing. Kind of want to finish it. You know, that, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got to... I mean, if... It is... How, how can I put this? It is a very bad idea to never finish anything. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and and it is something. It is an easy trap to fall into because yeah. you know if you if you are writing something and you come up with a great idea and you're like, oh, I want to write this, and then you have a you know you have ten different unfinished projects, and eventually you know you'll kind of forget where you were going with some of that, and then that it tends becomes even day. harder to finish. Yeah. I have I have an entire universe of superhero characters, hundreds of them, all with like like a, there's a lot of stories I have that are eighty percent finished, and it's just like I should really finish these. Yeah, and and then I ended up writing the good guy. <laughs> <laughs> so I just I just completely dropped all of those after working so hard on coming up with the different characters and and. You know, I was coming up with all these rules for how their superpowers worked, and then I had to come up with all the different superpowers. And I had 
hundreds of influences from anime characters, and I just kept going and going, and then it was just like, oh wait, I have to write this other story that I just thought of because it's just too darn good. Yeah. And then that became what? What did, what did the good guy end up being? Like 150,000 words or something like that? No, 230,000. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, I, I had to look it up because I was like, just how, just where does that rank in books? It was, uh, it's twice the size of Jurassic Park and about half the size of War and Peace. Yeah. And it actually has a couple of those superhero characters that I came up with in it. Uh, I kind of, I kind of worked all my stories together in, in, in completely by accident. I, I, I managed to find a way to link everything I was writing. And it's all because I sat down one day about six or seven years ago and finally read H.P. Lovecraft, which... Yeah, I, I didn't. I spent my whole life thinking that he was a modern author that just everyone really loved, and so I was actively avoiding him. Ah, how did you manage that? <laughs> well, it's 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 like it's one of them things where it's like my reading experience was always just going to the library and finding something at random, and then sure. when I had money, going to bookstores and finding stuff at random. And I never really looked up information on you know classical literature or people that you know were famous for writing. So when I heard people talk about H.P. Lovecraft. In my head, it was it, it was one of them. Uh, it was like a James Patterson or something, where he, where it's a modern author, and, oh, and so I everyone's see. talking about this person. And I couldn't find many modern authors at the time that I really cared about, and right. so I was, I just actively ignored them. And then one day it was just like, oh wait a minute, these are horror stories. This is an author from the nineteen from the early nineteen hundreds. Yes. And then I found a website that had all of his public domain stuff up for free, and I, I read it all. And it, it was Mountains of Madness, really, where I was like, I need to integrate cosmic horror into all of my stories. And I've been doing that ever since. It worked out so well for everything I had that I managed to tie pretty much every single universe for every different story I've been writing together in ways that will not be apparent for, like, 20 books. <laughs> uh-huh. Got a lot of work ahead of me. Yeah, well, you know that that's a good thing, right? You have uh, you you have you have a, a giant chunk of things that need to be done, and not a giant chunk of things that where it's like I don't know what to do with this. That's the worst place to be is to just be like blocked on something. Yeah, and and we can get into that topic another time, where because we actually have the uh, the structuring and outlining is one of the topics we want to go over at some point. And technically, yeah. what I just described is kind of an outlining or structure. Like I don't have anything written down. It's just like I know which stories I have written and which ones I want to read uh, or write, and you know where I want to go with that. I kind of have a lot of it figured out. Yeah, but like you, you can. So like you've read Sylvia Saga and the Rack, and you kind of know what I'm talking about, where I have these elements of cosmic horror in them. Sure. Yeah, of course. And because I started including a lot of vampires and monsters in my stories, that all kind of helps to you know cement that in place. Right, right. Which brings us back around to influences. So I had never really done anything with vampires in any of my writing. Okay. And just out of nowhere, I'm, I'm trying to remember, I think I think it was one of my friends showed me one of the Underworld movies. And up until that time, the only vampire movies that I had really ever bothered with were, I, like, I'd watched the original Blade movie. Okay. And, uh, you know, I didn't have much vampire experience, hadn't read many vampire novels. But but I watched one of the Underworld movies, and I really liked the character pl that played the patriarch of the vampires. And I started, you know, sitting there thinking about different vampire things. And then 
Oh, no, actually, it was earlier than that. I take it back. Because I watched the the original animated uh, Helsing. Okay. The TV show. And, yeah. And, and so I, like, it, it was kind of like a kickstart to, like, an interest in vampires. And... Oh, sure. I mean, like, that's a, I mean, if you're going to get, if you're going to get interested in vampires, that's one of the better places to do it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, <laughs> that and Vampire Hunter D, which is, if there's anything that was like the very first Vampire Hunter Hunter or Vampire thing that I thought was cool, it was Vampire Hunter D. Which it turned out, uh, you, you know, after upon reflection and after getting my hands on some of the novels, I had always mm-hmm. suspected that Vampire Hunter D kind of had uh, a lot of influence by characters like Solomon Kane. And I couldn't find anyone online who could confirm this for for a long time. Okay. And I finally they so, finally so just released... for just for anyone anyone listening, Robert uh, Solomon Kane is a Robert E. Howard character. Yeah, yeah. the uh, The guy who wrote Conan the Barbarian had earlier written two characters, Solomon Kane and Cole the Conqueror, which is basically a Cole the Conqueror was different from Conan, but he was kind of a proto-Conan the Barbarian. Yeah, yeah. You know, he was supposed to be like a Hyperborean... He was supposed to be like the the King of Atlantis. Right. Who, I believe, in the first story actually gets exiled from Atlantis. I'm trying to remember, but... They're they're good stories. Robert E. Howard wrote really great fiction with uh, supernatural twists, and he's kind of considered the father of sword and sorcery. Well... He really is the father of sword and sorcery. It's a lot of times contributed to Conan, uh, attributed to Conan the Barbarian, but Solomon Kane was earlier than Conan, and it was literally sword and sorcery in the stories. Yeah. And it, and if you go and watch the animated Vampire Hunter D, you can see where this character is like blatantly based off of a Solomon Kane in, in his attitude and his dress and his ability with weapons. And then yeah. you read the books, and there's just no doubt about it. But I still couldn't find any connections until I realized that the book itself had a section where it talked about the author. It wasn't the about the author section. It had, like, a preface or something where they sure, actively sure. said that he was influenced by Robert E. Howard. And I was like, finally! <laughs> finally, <laughs> Like, I couldn't find an interview or anything. Yeah, well... And it's a long-running series of books, too. There's, like, 33 stories, and they only ever made uh, animated features out of two of them. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, and he also had... So, like, Demon City Shinjuku was one of uh, one of his as well. Oh. And there is a character in it called... was I think it was... I think his name was Mephisto. It was an M. I, I'm think, I think it was Mephisto. He had several books where he was the main character, and it was, like, his adventures living in this Demon City, as, as far as I could collect from, you know, what I read online. I didn't... I haven't actually read any of them. Right. But they're he, hard to get a hold of in English, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, they've they've only translated a few of the Vampire Hunter D books so far. As far as I know, none of those are translated. Right. But I'm trying to get my hands on some Japanese copies of them so I can translate them. It's a good idea. And, and you know, he plays he plays a bit of a role in Demon City Shinjuku, but you know, because that was an era where they kind of were just making these movies for fans who already knew the material. Yeah. They didn't really explain a lot about who he was or why he was such a threat to the villain in the movie. Like, like the villain didn't want anything to do with him, and you didn't know why <laughs> if you just watched the movie. Yeah, yeah. Kind of like a Tom Bombadil situation where it's like, yeah, nobody's going to mess with this guy, really. But, you know, that that's how a lot of 
those animated features were back then. It was, you, you did have to know a little bit of the source material. People complain about that nowadays, but I don't think that's what they're really complaining about. I think they're complaining about the entire story not making sense these days. There's a lot more of that, it seems like. these. Yeah, are, yeah, I, like I mean, there is a coherent story in Demon City Shinjuku. It just happens to have this character tacked in that's just like, I don't know why, I, I don't understand what he's doing. Because you don't get an explanation unless you know that the character does the... He, he knows a lot about chemistry and things, and he studies yeah. demons or something. But, you know, that's that's a good example of... You know, you know, more mainstream. How how mainstream writers use inspiration. Here, here's a guy who's very successful with his series of books, and he's got an animated feature for one of his characters, and he's got several other animated features for different characters. And he was largely inspired by a you know a single famous author from the, the early 1900s. Yeah, I mean, Robert E. Howard was incredibly prolific, right? Oh, he was amazing. He he, he he could he, set a scene. Oh, well, no, I'm just talking about I'm just talking about productivity. Like I've heard stories, I've heard I've heard tales that sound almost mythical about his his productivity as a writer. Just like you know, two two you know medium length kind of somewhere between novella and novels per month kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, he was one of those authors that would make regular contributions to anything he wrote for, and yeah. you know, people were just amazed at how quickly he could crank these things out. I mean, he wrote a ton of Conan the Barbarian stories, and it was just one after the other, after the other, after the other. Uh, and they they were all, for the most part, good. There there were a couple that, you, you know, it's like, okay, I can pass on this one, but it wasn't, there wasn't many, and, and even those had something to them. Yeah. And he had a really unique style. Like, uh... I I would say that his style was probably even more unique than Lovecraft's, and Lovecraft was pretty unique too. Well, like it's funny because, gosh, I I, did, I just picked up a, a copy of a collection of all the um, what's his name, uh, <laughs> crap, my brain my brain went Lovecraft? off in a weird. Br no, not Lovecraft. Uh, Robert E. Howard, the 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 guy, Robert E. Howard's guy, uh. Conan. Uh, no, no, the other one. Bran McMorn. No, 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 the, 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 the Puritan the guy. No, the Puritan guy. Oh, oh Solomon Kane. <laughs> yeah, Solomon Kane. For some reason, I for some reason the phrase Citizen Kane came into my head, and I'm like, I know that's not right. <laughs> <laughs> we were just talking about this. Are you okay? I know, right? <laughs> Are you smelling burnt toast? <laughs> I, no, it doesn't smell like burnt toast in here, thankfully. No, um, it's funny because that collection has a has a like a foreword. The foreword is written by H.P. Lovecraft, who wrote it right after uh, Robert E. Howard died. Basically, he's like, and, and like that was that was a weird thing to read. <laughs> oh yeah, they, knowing, they were good. They were uh, they were good buddies. I, they wrote back and forth a lot. Sure, but like knowing knowing at the same time that Lovecraft himself was going to die very young, I was like, I was like, wait, Howard died before Lovecraft, and then Lovecraft wrote an uh, an epitaph for Robert E. Howard, and <laughs> it, it was just like. I, I thought that Robert E. Howard had lived to a, considering how much he had produced, I, I had assumed that he had lived to a, a ripe old age, but apparently not. Yeah, well, Robert E. Howard killed himself. Oh, he did? Yeah. He, I didn't uh, know that. That wasn't, Lovecraft didn't mention that in the epitaph, so. I, I, I imagine he would leave that out. Yeah, yeah. He he. Well, had... well, well. Lovecraft might not, but like normal people would. 
According to what I read, Robert E. Howard had been taking care of his sick mother for a very long time, and he was he was not doing well with dealing with the idea of her dying. I see. And he also had always felt that he had been born in the wrong time. Like, the stuff that he was writing was this personal fantasy of his where, you know, he was getting away from the civilized world that seemed so mundane and, you know, bogged down with uh, all of these societal expectations and that was mm -hmm. one of the things that you know he would constantly make social commentary in conan the barbarian about how here's this guy he's in the middle of this uh you know this this grand city that's the height of civilization and he's the one honest thing there he, and and conan would often off he would often remark in the stories to people about how these civilized men that he was surrounded by were the biggest cheats and snakes and cowards he had ever met in his life and how they all spoke with, uh, they were all double-tongued, and... Yeah. You know, it was it was one of the themes of his stories, and, you know, apparently that was just... He was never happy with the world he lived in. He kind of Ernest Heming Hemingwayed after that. I see. That's a shame. Yeah, he, he was an incredible writer. You know, th there was a lot going on during the... Like, there was this whole circle of people during the, those times where it was like, Especially with Lovecraft, he wrote letters to a lot of his uh, fellow authors, and they would come up with all these different ideas, like like the the Lovecraft universe, the uh, like all of the the old gods and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, the the old gods and and old ones and everything. Like it wasn't just Lovecraft that came up with a lot of them. They they there was this whole universe that was being created by several authors, and uh, a lot of times they were all using each other's work. Conan the Barbarian stories especially make references to a lot of Lovecraft cosmic horrors. And, you know, they, he, I think he did stories in Conan that even referenced the Deep Ones at one point, but I'm not sure about that. Okay. Uh, but, you know, they would talk about, you know, creatures that fell to Earth from the stars and I'm trying to remember what the specific, there were like Stygian nightmares and things that he would reference. And yeah, uh, yeah. a lot of the snake men that were in the stories were kind of, there, there was a lot picked from Lovecraft or, yeah. stories. They, they shared a bunch of ideas and many of the Lovecraft monsters that people know today were actually not Lovecraft's creation. There, there were like, like the children of Cthulhu, I think. I don't remember the author that created them, but there was like like the sister of Cthulhu and all these other ones. He didn't really create those, but it was a it was a big group effort for people that liked writing that kind of thing. I see. My my writing history isn't really that good, but I know a bit about a bit. And yeah, I, I this is this is one of those things. I, I haven't read enough Conan. I I, I read a, a couple of novellas, and uh, I got one of the. There was a comic book that adapted one of his stories, and it was all good stuff. It's just that I haven't read enough of it yet. Yeah, he, he. I mean, there's not a, there's not a ton of Conan stuff written by him, but there, there's a lot in a short period of time that he wrote because yeah. he had stated once that his way, his way of writing was he would write a character until he was done with that character. Uh, you know, people asked him when, when he was writing Conan the Barbarian. People would ask him if he was going to write any more Solomon Kane stories, and he was like, "I." He would tell them that he was finished with Solomon Kane, yeah. and someday he'd be finished with Conan, and he'd move on to another character after that. It's an interesting perspective. Like it's you, you know, you have a character, and you, you, you just kind of get to the bottom of it. You know what I mean? 
It's, I mean, it's not even necessarily about getting to the bottom. He, I mean, he never, like, started or closed up anything about Solomon Kane. He just wrote all the stories he wanted to write about Solomon Kane, and then he was done. Well, I mean, but, but the, but the stories in Solomon Kane, of, the Solomon Kane stories have a, 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 a significant through line. So it's not like he left a lot of empty areas and stuff like that, but, like, yeah. Yeah, but it's just—it's just it's not like it's not like some. It, it's I mean, it, it's like the essence of Pulp Fiction. You're not telling a story from start to finish. You're telling a story about you know a character, and it's a story that can be. It's a character that can be used in similar stories, you know, yeah. over and over again. It, it doesn't have to have a definite beginning or a definite ending. That's one of the things that's great about uh, Robert E. Howard is he never really just he never really started a character with like oh this character was. You know, uh, he was born here and he grew up in this way. It was like everything that happened in a character's past was kind of an offhand mention, if anything ever even came up. Yeah, there'd be occasional hints, but no, but like they weren't over. He wasn't over interested in like creating an origin story, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Like like it was not making not an explicit one. Yeah. I I remember one of the one of the best uh, Conan moments was he was fighting this giant of a man, and you know it's th- this this guy is strangling Conan and, and like forcing him back, and then finally Conan reverses the entire momentum on him, strains and stretches forward and just starts crushing this guy's neck, and he says, "I used to break the necks of buffaloes back home." <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> or something like that. It wasn't buffaloes. It was, uh, you know, they would they would practice by killing these giant beasts, and he and he would just, you know, he was basically telling the guy right before he killed him that he had completely underestimated his strength. Yeah, of course. But uh, I mean, those are good reads. If someone's looking for something to inspire them for a bit of uh, a bit of an action based set of stories or sword and sorcery. Conan the Barbarian's a good place to start. Solomon Kane I actually liked better. because uh, there's a lot of a lot of weirdness in Solomon Kane that uh isn't as developed as it is in Conan, because by the time Robert E. Howard wrote the Conan stories, he'd already been thinking about these kinds of things a lot. So there's there's like really sure. weird stuff. Uh um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen, I've I've read a little bit of Solomon Kane and a little bit of Conan and yeah the Solomon Kane stuff is a little bit more out there like like stuff stuff kind of happens and you're like wait what and, and but Conan's a little bit more through line grounded I guess you would say yeah and and his other works are good too uh, I haven't read any of his Captain Stevens stuff but Bran McMorn was a good character there were only a handful of stories with him Cole the Conqueror had a handful of stories that were great. Mm-hmm. They, they actually did one story. Uh, this one was kind of interesting. So Bran McMorn had this uh, this wizard that worked for him, and he didn't believe in magic or anything, but he kind of trusted the wisdom of this wizard. Sure. And this wizard manages to call... Uh, they, he, they've got a group with them that is refusing to fight. They're going to fight this war, and one of the groups refuses to fight without a king leading them. And this wizard uh, promises to summon them, the, summon for them the greatest king that ever lived. And he summons Cole the Conqueror, the king of Atlantis. Okay. And ends up having Cole leading them into battle for, for this big battle that Bran McMorn's a part of. 
and it, it's the only crossover with his characters that I'm aware of. I don't think Solomon Kane ever met any of these characters. I don't think Conan ever met any of these characters. Yeah. But it, it was pretty interesting how they did it. So, like, they, they called forth Cole the Conqueror, and Cole the Conqueror thinks he's dreaming the whole time. So, so it's kind of funny how we worked that in where it's just like, eh, none, none of this matters. It's just a dream for me. I'll do whatever you want. What do you want me to do? <laughs> it's nice. And this is early 1900s stuff. Like, this is stuff that people... Pe- people don't even write stuff that, you know, humorous and intelligent these days. Just, I mean, okay, well, you'd have to read it well, to see why it's... Well, th- you know, there was so much competition back then, like, um... Yeah, very competitive writing for um, magazines back in the day. But, it, but like, but it was not just that there was... It's not just that it was competitive, it's that there was a lot of different fields to write in. Like, um... yeah. There's there's the there's the pulp magazine project or something. They're they're working on kind of collecting all of the, all of the old pulp magazines that they can find and like making a big collection of all of them and like just the just the sheer number of these magazines that were, you know, going around is kind of ridiculous. Like you know, hun- a couple hundred of them, and you know they would they would they would you know publish once a month or some of them even twice a month, and uh, you know they'd have fresh stories. In every single one, serialized, you know, novellas, short stories, all that, you know, uh, abridged novels. Even they're really interesting to they're really interesting to look at these days because there's such a there's such a thing we don't have anymore. You know, the like, there's a lot of styles that have been lost because yeah, you know, writing be it's a great thing that we have the ability to mass-produce writing and entertainment for people, but one of the things that comes with that is those who are... Tr- you know, when you're trying to make money writing, there there's people that will just write and, you know, hope they got something worth reading, and there's a yeah. lot of people who will look at the system and say, well, this is what a lot of other people are reading. If I write this, chances are it'll be something that, you know, a large group of people might want to look at. And so there, with having a lot of quantity... A, a bit of stagnation came with that mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Not not completely, because, you know, there's there's new things that people do now that they weren't doing in the early 1900s. I mean, there sure. was no Terry Pratchett in the early 1900s that I was aware of. There's there's a just a ton of fantasy epics out there that you can read nowadays, and those were not a major thing in the early 1900s. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, it seems like every, it seems like everybody wants to have a fantasy epic these days. <laughs> yeah, but like, there's there's phases for everything. I mean, westerns sure. used to be a really big thing. All the Louis L'Amour books, you know, there, there's what was that 1960s when the westerns were popular novels well, or 50s? Well, uh, I think Louis L'Amour is older than that. That like the the the, the westerns became popular as movies in like the the 60s and 70s. But oh yeah, like, that's a good I th- point. I, th- I thought uh, Louis L'Amour was way older than that, but I guess I could be totally wrong well, about that. I'm looking it up live. Louis. Yeah, I am too. <laughs> Louis L'Amour. I mean, this could be 1800s for all I know. Oh, 1908. Uh, okay, so 19... so through June so... 1988. So he was probably writing them in the 30s or 40s. Let's yeah. see. And yeah, it's, his uh, novels started in. It looks like his first novel was in 1950. Yeah, so and okay, then, so then he I, wrote through 87. I was or close. So. Yeah, you're right. Good stuff. What about what about character inspirations? Do you have any good character inspirations? Good character inspirations. 
I think that's one of the parts I struggle with the most. I, I'll, I'll come up occasionally with a few good ideas here and there, but I mean, like, yeah, I don't know. Character inspirations in particular, a lot of my stuff isn't really, like, heavy character-driven. I mean, I've definitely taken a little bit of a little bit of inspiration from the pulps and stuff like that, but that was because I wanted to try to write something pulp-like. So, uh, you know, Lovecraft, you know, I, I've been reading a lot of Lovecraft recently, and uh, I've been finding a lot of inspiration there, but, like, not necessarily, you know, character and, and, like, story inspiration, so I don't know. How about you? Well, I mean, this is... It's probably where I shine the best in terms of finding inspiration for things. I mean, yeah, and, and this is where you'll start to get a real sense of uh, how much of an anime nerd I am. I, I I think I referred to myself at work once as Weeb Force One. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'll I'll take the obvious one. The one I talk about the most is uh, I have a character that's that ends up becoming a vampire in one of my stories. And again, going back to the vampire anime that I watched, you know, I, the scene in the Helsing anime, the original television one, yeah, where it, it was the first episode where, uh, what was it, uh, Cirrus Victoria? Sure. I forget what her last name is. I think it's Victoria. It's Victoria. Yeah. So Cirrus Victoria was a character that was, she was, uh, she was in the police force. She stumbled upon vampires and one of the band, uh, one of the vampires took her hostage and Alucard showed up at that exact moment. He was going to kill the vampires. And she was there and had already been bitten by the vampires. And so there was nothing that could really be done about it. But instead of no, killing she, her... No, she hadn't, she hadn't been bitten. She well, yeah, was she was being, being held hostage and she gets bitten in, in the course well, of... Well, no, she, she doesn't get bitten. Be, so... Oh, that's right. It, no, no, I'm... Yeah, <laughs> it, it's, it's way darker than that. Yeah, no, she... Uh, <laughs> She gets killed by the vampire, and... She gets killed by Alucard. No, no, she was dying, and... No. She, she was going to die. Okay, so... Alec okay, Alucard what? shot her. Yes, she was going to die. Yes, but... The, the, but... The, it, it was all Alucard from, yeah, like, beginning to yeah. end. Like, like, no, I, the, the, the I was just remembering was just wrong like, because yeah. I had it written different, differently in my own story, but what I, the point I'm getting at is I basically stole this entire idea. <laughs> So she gets shot by Alucard, and then, because he had to shoot her to kill the vampire, he decides to turn her into a vampire to, so she wouldn't die. Right. Or, you know, what forever, what for, for whatever weird reason he had. I, I stole that entire idea for the character that I put in one of my books that eventually became a vampire. I, I actually had her tagging along with the uh, hero of the story mm -hmm. for, for a while, and they came across a vampire that took her hostage... And before he was killed by the hero, uh, he bit her. And so for the rest of the book, she's a vampire, which has its own humorous little aspects. But the point is, it's like that was one scene that I saw. I don't remember exactly when Helsing came out, but I know I was still in high school. So it had to have been at least... It was in the late 90s. Uh, yeah, yeah. So it was like... I saw that scene 20 years before I wrote that book, and I had never watched it again between then, and <laughs> that was the entire inspiration for how she became a vampire. Well, that's not entirely true, because I did show you the Helsing Ultimate stuff later on. Okay, so that's So you've true, seen that scene but, twice. <laughs> yeah, but, well, I don't know, did I watch that before or after? I, uh, the, good, the good guy was in 2017. Yeah, I no, I, I, I showed you... 
I mean, okay, yeah, that was earlier. So I, I was, did see it, it yeah. once before, but I hadn't forgotten because I know it was a different. It happened a little bit differently in each one. I yeah, I, and I know this is going to sound weird after everything I want. I just went through, but I, I remember it a bit clearly from the original. <laughs> Maybe I I just I remember the details of you know thinking that that was a cool way for a vampire to start out, and I just had my own take on it when I wrote it down. Sure, and that led to you know a lot of that particular character ended up being based off of Ceres in the end because her whole character arc in that anime was one of, uh, uh, you know, she's she's pretty much following around the real hero of the story and kind of witnessing things outside of, you know, the perspective of who the story is kind of focused on. Yeah. And so that that sort of also makes the story focus on her. And that means every once in a while... She has a moment where she's involved in something in the story where she has to take some action, and yeah. that was the that that was the largest inspiration for that entire character. I, I wrote the whole book with that in mind. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, she well, she's the narrator. So. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> one of my favorite characters ever because she's a narrator that can't actually talk. Right. But Sarah's Victoria was always one of my favorite anime characters, and uh, it just seemed logical that. I would have to have my own similar character. I did the same thing with Lena Inverse. Mm-hmm. Did the same thing with Naga the Serpent. I had inspirations from the Dirty Pair, of course. I think we talked about that mm-hmm. once before. Um, a lot of lot of characters from books too. I've I've got several characters that are influenced by both Nero Wolf and Arsene Lupin. I don't have too many. I have one character that's influenced by Sherlock Holmes, but he's not actually a detective. He's a uh, he's a superhero character because Sherlock Holmes is basically a superhero character. Yeah, he's yes. I I uh, I have one, just one character that's kind of based off of him. Don't really have anyone based off of Conan the Barbarian or uh, Solomon Kane all that much. Get to work. <laughs> well, I mean, I I, I got a lot no, going I'm jo- on. I'm joking, I, but like, no. I'm just... <laughs> I I do I do have characters based off of the Shadow. I have one in particular that that I'm really happy with that i based Mm -hmm. off of the shadow i kind of wanted to make a character as close to the shadow as possible uh because he was always ever since the movie from 1994 the shadow has been my favorite superhero and and i went and i learned a ton of stuff about him listened to the old radio shows and just i just love the shadow yeah uh i i did a lot of things that were were kind of like based off of the old pulp heroes as well um, one of my one of my characters that I based off of one of the Dirty Pair also had a little bit of influence from Doc Savage. I haven't ever read any Doc Savage. Is it good? I, I mean, I haven't read too many of them. They're they're okay. They're I like the Shadow a lot better. There okay. was a crossover book between the Shadow and Doc Savage, and it was glorious. It was it was a, just a it was a work of art how this book ended. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of people that probably aren't going to really you know read a lot of these books, but well, like, I mean, that's the thing that I, like, um, I, I really do want to recommend that, that people actually go take a look at these books, if if for no other reason than th- that they are free now, right? Like, oh, Yes, a lot of them are free, and a lot of them are very, very good. The Shadow in particular, some of the books are just fantastic. Yeah. Uh, I think, I think Doc Savage and the Shadow, it was called The Sinister Shadow. I forget who wrote it. Because okay. I think it was, I don't think it was the original author. I think it was... A, a, it might have been a recent book. I, I'd have to look it up. I mean, it was I think the Doc Savage is still going on. I, I think people are still writing Doc Savage books, like official ones. Yeah, 
Yeah, Doc Savage, so, I believe, is. I don't think that's the case for the Shadow, which is kind of sad. He's kind of been locked up in, uh, was it Dynamite Comics or someone? I I don't think I, the Shadow is public domain yet. So I think, uh, I think he's under the ownership of a comic company currently. Possibly, yeah. And they, I, I read a couple of them. I didn't see too much done that I cared about. There were some earlier works in like, I think the late '90s that I read that were pretty yeah. good. But yeah, The Sinister Shadow was a great book. It was basically... It, it, I read it around the same time that uh, Batman vs. Superman, the, the Dawn of Justice, came out. And okay. I, I had specifically read it because I knew that movie was going to be garbage, and I looked and up... And it was. Yes, we have a video was, on it. <laughs> yes. Uh, I looked up to see if The Shadow had ever done any kind of crossover stories in any of the books, and he did square off against Doc Savage, and it was it was a great, great little uh crossover nice and, and the ending to it was very satisfying um they they actually pulled one of shadow's classic villains out for it okay and you know they 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 did the thing that they usually do where you know the the verses ends up being a team-up which yes it, it, it's an old trope but you know it's basically what every single one of them ends up being but they really gave it a good twist at the end where it was like I mean, it was kind of a team up, but you know, they—that's not necessarily. Well, yeah, I mean, tr- tropes are fine, but the best way to use a trope is to use the trope and then twist it at the end, or, or twist it somewhere so that people realize that it's not quite the trope. Especially with the shadow, because it, yeah, it's uh, the shadow is a, a lot of superheroes. A lot of times in modern stories, no matter how willing they are to kill the bad guys they tend to get pushed in these directions by a lot of modern writing where they move away from killing the bad guys you know very few characters seem to hold on to that like the punisher always managed to maintain killing the bad guys as far as i can remember you know ghost rider killed a lot of bad guys there 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 were a lot of comic book characters that did kill the bad guys but that was i mean that was what made the shadow was you know he he's one of the original superheroes and I believe, I'm pretty sure The Shadow was the first time the word supervillain ever even turned up in a book. He said that there were these criminals out there that the police just couldn't do anything about, and that's why he existed, to hunt down these super criminals. And mm-hmm. uh, he, would, he would just eliminate them. That was, he, there was no compromise. He was just going to kill the bad guy no matter what. Well, I mean, it, it's, you know, probably it's, it's a question of like... Um the age group that you're targeting, right? Like you, yeah, it's very, it's very hard to, to pitch a, a especially, especially a more visual medium, right? Like a, a movie or a comic book where the main character is constantly killing people uh, and have that be something that is seen to be something that you, you can market to kids. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, in, in novels or, or in just in pure written word, there, there there's less, because it's less graphic, it's more acceptable. But the, the the more visual the medium gets, the more people are like, kids shouldn't be seeing this. So Yeah, and you know that, that can work great for certain characters. It's really weird to me when they try to take a character like the Punisher or the Shadow and market them to kids. Yeah, yeah, that's it's strange. Like, you, but... you can't really dumb that down and have it be the same character. You, 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 you can't I, reduce... I mean, th- there's a very strong tendency these days to, to like take a character, take a well-known character with a well-known name and make them a different character, but maintain the name just to maintain 
recognition, you know, yeah, marketability. Yeah, just like, you know, you purchase the right to use it, and then you make it something that's just completely different, and it just has that veneer of that character on it. Yeah. I mean, Batman is a good example. Now, Batman is what happened when someone wanted to make a shadow that wasn't just going to kill all of the bad guys. And even sure. Batman at the beginning, I'm pretty sure, was killing some of the bad guys. But yeah, I think so. He, he uh, th- th- there's of... a, there's a, there's a couple of well-known comic panels with Batman where he just has a gun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and but he he had, he evolved into this hero that, you know, was was against killing his enemies and you know, he yeah. became more of a detective character that uh as you once put it, well, you know, he catches the criminals red-handed. He doesn't uh he's not really dishing he out go around justice. He doesn't go around slugging people you know because he because he assumes that they're going to start causing a crime. Yeah. Whereas the shadow would just, you know, it's like you're you're a crime boss, nobody can stop you except me. I'm going to put you down. Well, the shadow was also very like psychological too. He, you know, like yeah. generally speaking, the 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 the, the, the sh- there were of course cases where the shadow just took a direct hand and was like, "No, I'm going to shoot you." But like there there but there were also times where the shadow would trick someone into, you know, causing their own demise. Or he would trick someone into, or at the very least, he would trick someone into like not realizing that it was the shadow who was causing his demise. Yeah, one of the one of the things about the shadow that I always enjoyed was that there was clearly someone doing something, but a lot of people didn't believe the shadow existed. Yeah, well, that kind of mystery is a useful element for a character because it allows it allows the stories to to take place without everybody assuming that. That that like this is hey this is, you know there's a guy who does this stuff right right like like if 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 it, it would it would it would how can I put this I'm having trouble I'm having trouble like collecting what I'm trying to say but like having having a having a main character or having a, a hero who people don't believe exists means that that they won't deliberately avoid the kind of situations that that character would be able to deal with right. If, yeah. If every if everybody, you know, to, to give an extreme example, if there was a superhero who could just, you know, wink out anyone who causes a, you know, who commits a crime out of existence, right? Uh, then people would just be, and everybody believed that he existed. They'd be like, well, I probably shouldn't, probably shouldn't do crimes because I'll just get winked out of existence. Yeah. Well, that was kind of the basis for Death Note. That's what. Yeah, I was. The... I was actually just going to mention that. You know, Death Note. The, the um, there there was a lot of. There, there was there was a lot of questions always about what were the rules and what someone was capable of and how someone could wrangle a situation in which they were capable of doing X while making it look like they couldn't do X. So yeah, and it it made for a good story because you had a situation where someone could quite literally wink people out of existence, and that that's kind of what made the detective in the story. Uh, so entertaining was that it, yeah especially the the way that it happened in that story for my money there was no better part in that story than the very first thing that that l solved about the case where he was like oh i've narrowed it down to this little area in japan this mm-hmm. must be where the criminal is it, it was a fantastic setup for a good well, piece it, of detective it, it, work. It, it, it wasn't it wasn't just that he he he, he deduced that the criminal might be in a specific area, and then he performed a test to confirm that that was the case. Yeah. That was that was really like like it was just like one of those things where you're like, oh wow. <laughs> and and you're watching this and you're like, we're we're like two episodes in and he's already gotten this far. This show is going to be great, isn't it? And it was. It was a great yeah. show. 
Uh, I know a lot of people didn't like the second half as much as the first, and there's, I mean, I don't think anyone's going to argue that L was the better detective than M and N. Or, or no, he, he de- I mean, you know, everyone's going to say L was the better detective. Yes. M and N were, you know, they were good fill-ins for, you know, after... The story couldn't they, progress they, they unless were, what happened, too, happened. They were too. They were too unreal to, to me. Like they were like like L was quirky and eccentric, but like seemed like a real person. Yeah, he and, seemed like a Sherlock Holmes ish kind of character. Yeah, but the other and, two just seemed too like they were too. They were too quirky. And mostly in N, too, because yeah. M, you didn't get much screen time for him. So when no. he did something, you had a sense that he had been preparing what he was doing. Right. And you understood why he did what he did uh, to try and solve things. It was, a, it was a little weird how he decided to go about it, but I still kind of had a sense that, you know, he would have been a good standalone detective character. Yeah. Um, everything that N was doing, he was like, okay, he's, he's setting traps and trying to corner, uh, corner the, uh, the villain, but it's, it just didn't have the impact of L, the way L solved the mysteries. Because right. they, they sort of took L and split him, they, they, they like detangled him from himself to make M and N. And I feel yeah. like M got a lot of the good stuff, and N got a lot of the stuff that was just like, he felt more like he was just trying to be L, as yeah. opposed to his own character. I haven't seen that show in decades. <laughs> I probably should go through it one of these days. It was it was a great little detective show. Um, I can't really say I ever pulled any inspiration from that one, though. For as much as I liked L as a character, uh, yeah, I, I don't think I have any characters like that. I, I know I, I've got one detective character that didn't really have too much influence from actual detective characters, because I specifically made her not the greatest detective. Yeah. But I gave her an ability that kind of compensated for it. Okay, sure. And, and you know, I had planned in the, in those stories to make references to characters that were clearly supposed to be famous detective characters. Haven't right. done that yet, but but I'm getting there. Getting there. Yeah, I, I can't really... I think I just wanted to write a detective story, so I sat around coming up with the character. I didn't really use any detective character influences for her, though. Sure. Well, I mean, uh, you, the I'm the greatest detective thing is so tropey that you just you just shouldn't use it these days. Yeah, and, and it's actually... It's a nice thing to not have the greatest detective in your story because, well, I mean, even the Sherlock Holmes stories, like, Sherlock Holmes always acknowledged that his brother Mycroft was the smarter of the two. He was just lazy and didn't want to do the work. <laughs> you know, he had, he had uh, embedded himself in the government in a situation in which everyone relied on him and he didn't have to do much at all to make things happen. Yeah. So he, he was not the kind to really, you know, take action himself. He would just drop it in his brother's lap. Yeah, uh, yeah. I actually saw a really good representation of that recently. There is a newer anime. Like I said, lots of anime here. But there, there's a newer one. It's uh, Undead Farce something. I keep forgetting the title. <laughs> uh, the detective is a is just a head that's being carried around. And, you know, I, I avoided it for a long time, thinking yeah. that it was just, okay, it's, it's someone carrying a really smart detective's head around in a cage. And it, it's probably just a gimmick for a... How can this possibly be good? Yeah. It's really good. There's <laughs> I know, right? not as much mystery in it as I would like, but it's really good and the mysteries are okay. Have you watched it? I haven't watched it. Oh, oh, you you would like it. So so they, they end up bringing a lot of both real life and uh, detective character characters into it. Like early on in the show, mm-hmm. they, they have a situation where Arsene Lupin has kidnapped the Phantom of the Opera 
and is <laughs> convincing him to help with a heist. So it's our okay. Saint Lupin and the, Fa- and the Phantom of the Opera are going to steal this gem. And so they call in the heroes for the story and Sherlock Holmes and Watson. Okay. And so for the first time, for the first real time since Maurice LeBlanc wrote our Saint Lupin versus Sherlock Holmes, which is the greatest face-off of two detective characters that I've ever read. Yeah. Uh, you get to see them in an animated movie together going head-to-head. And they actually, they, what surprised me the most is they, they, they were in character. They had these two in character. They, they did a fantastic job with both of them, as, as good as could be expected. Now, nice. I should say, there is an actual, like, 1980s Sherlock Holmes versus Arsène Lupin anime that uh-huh. I haven't been able to get my hands on yet. Uh, I'm sure it's fantastic if it follows the book at all, but it, it exists, it's out there, trying to find it, going to watch it. But, <laughs> but this particular show, not only did they call in those characters, they also, they, had, they brought Moriarty into it. Okay. They brought a bunch of fictional characters like Victor Frankenstein into it, and in this case, Victor Frankenstein is actually the Frankenstein monster for some reason. Because why not? They they had real life people like like they have Alistair Crowley in it as a magician who so so the big bad guys are basically planning to show up and steal this gem from Lupin when he st- once he steals it sure and things kind of go wrong you know there's there's these all these different face offs but you know you've got Alistair Crowley you've got this vampire that I'm sure was from I I'm sure she's from something that I can't remember it might have been Dracula I don't know all the names of the characters in Dracula. But but she's a vampire Shh. character. It wasn't Mina Murray. It was she had some other name. Sure. Uh, and and one of the big bad guys in it is Jack the Ripper. Okay. And the main characters in the story kind of uh, there, there's kind of this monster melding into human thing going on that apparently Moriarty decided he was going to merge humans with monsters to create a new criminal organization after Sherlock Holmes destroyed his original one. Okay. And they they do this scene where Sherlock Holmes is sitting in a chair and Watson walks in and Sherlock is telling Watson that he's pretty sure they're going to get a visit from Arsène Lupin that night. And then behind Watson, Mycroft Holmes uh, walks into the room and he looks at Sherlock and he goes, you're not my brother. And, <laughs> and Sherlock goes, oh, well, what makes you say I'm not your brother? And he, he, you know, he does one of them things where, you know, Mycroft Holmes just like, really blasé about it is just like uh, you, you you've got no dirt under your fingernails whatsoever my brother really works when he digs into a case there's you are clean as you know he, he basically points out a something that's obvious to him but wouldn't have been obvious to anyone else except sherlock holmes and yeah. then sherlock holmes walks in behind mycroft and so so lupin is sitting there dressed as sherlock holmes with a face mask of sherlock holmes he goes well i didn't expect you to figure it out that quickly but here we are takes the mask off, has a quick conversation, jumps out the window, and it's, it's just one of them things where they actually, they took the time, you know, you know, this is someone that read those books and took the time to point out to people that Mycroft Holmes was also a brilliant man who could spot these things, just like Sherlock Holmes. Most yeah. people wash over Mycroft in any of the stories they do. I know the, the movies with Robert Downey Jr., they had a ridiculous version of Mycroft Holmes where he didn't really do anything all that intelligent. And it was basically Stephen Fry standing around naked talking to a woman. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they, they used him more for comedy than anything. But 
they 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 had all these characters together and they were really doing a good job in this show of making these characters their actual characters from the books. The Phantom of the Opera was an excellent character and it inspired me to actually go finally after you know decades of thinking about it going to read The Phantom of the Opera. Which is, by the way, a fantastic book. I haven't finished it I, yet, but... I, I actually I'm, started reading it a few weeks ago myself. Yeah, I am loving every second of it. Uh, that's another thing. I've been finding a lot of books of, of like, old books over on, uh, like, like uh, what is it, archive.org or whatever it's called? Yeah. And you can find you can find copies of fiction and nonfiction from, you know, more than 100 years ago or so, and, you know, it's all scanned, and you just grab... You just grab documents and... Go read them, and hopefully you find a good copy of it. Hopefully someone did a good scan, and it didn't do a crappy scan. <laughs> yeah, but I like found all... a bunch of bad scans of things. <laughs> yeah, and I, I've I've come across those too. I've got a few where it's just like, you, you know, there's there's dirt and grain lines through what you're trying to read, but it's the oh, only oh, copy in existence. I, I, I found I found one where they got the pages all mixed up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's that too. There, I've, there, I've there also... was a, there, there was a copy of the Phantom of the Opera where like I was reading, I'm like. Wait, what? And then I go to the next page and I'm like, wait, what? And I go to the next page and I'm like, wait, what? And I'm like looking at the numbers. It's like, <laughs> this is page six, and this is page eight, and this is page four, and this is page seven. And it's like, why did, how did, I mean, you're scanning a book. How did you do this? Um, my personal favorite was finding one where they had scanned them all in as negatives. Ooh, that's a fun one. <laughs> Yeah, I kind of got sidetracked there with the whole anime thing, but, you know, these are the places where you can look for easy inspiration. Go back and read old books, watch old shows, watch new shows, watch uh, watch things that have nothing to do with, with writing. Just like, yeah, you, you know, it's like you don't necessarily have to be reading a book to be inspired to write something. I got a lot of my insp- inspiration from cartoons and movies, uh, probably more so than books at this point, because almost every character I come up with is in some way related to a character from an anime. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I had, I have a character in one of my stories that's a mummy. The entire idea for him came from just the look of a character from the, uh, Power Stone games. Yeah, okay. You know, there was, there was no backstory or anything that I had of this character. It was just like, that looks cool. I'm gonna make a character that's I'm a mummy. I'm gonna make that character, yeah. Yeah. And just, you know, if, if you're th- trying to come up with a back, a plot or a background for characters to exist in, or characters themselves, and you're really struggling, take a break. Yeah, normally I'd say go rent a movie, but it's not 1990 anymore. Uh, pop on, well, I don't want to say Netflix because... Pop on your favorite streaming service. Yes, pop something on that had, has something that you might want to watch, or try watching something new, God forbid, and uh, <laughs> 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 just, you know, give yourself a, a break and just watch something and see if see if something like catches your interest and say, oh, I could do something like that. Yeah, in order in order to do that, you generally need to be paying attention to it too. So there's a there's a I would say there's a strong like tendency these days for people to just like put things on in the background. But yeah, like you, you don't want to do that. You you want you to sit do down that. to something, and uh, you you want to you want to absorb yourself in it. Imagine the things that are going on in your head as well. See if it you know see if it's anything that when you see something that's a good idea mess with it in your head. Say, well, yeah. what if it had gone like this instead of this? Or what if this character was more like this instead of this? And it, it's, it's, I mean, it's really, really simple to come up with your own stuff that way. You know, you see a character do something clever, and then you sit there and try to think of something else they could have done that's also clever, and make that the basis for your character. Yeah. You watch a superhero show, and 
a character has this power, take that exact same power and say, all right, but what if I tweak it a little? Or what if I give them a ridiculous weakness that makes this power almost useless to them? You know, play around with things like that. Just, you'll, you'll never run out of ideas if you realize that you can draw from a whole history of ideas that humanity has created. Yep. So I, I kind of monopolized that one. You got anything to add to that? I mean, you know, I was just sitting here thinking and I, you know, um, you know, the, the, the first novella I wrote, you know, it, it, there, there were three main characters and <clears throat> I, I believe you picked up on, uh, on who, who influenced them the most, but like it was, it was Rex Stout. Cause I just read too much Rex Stout. If, if there is such a thing as, as reading too much Rex Stout, I read too much Rex Stout. There's no such thing as reading too much Rex Stout. <laughs> but uh, but I, I get a lot of influence from Stout in the way that I do my dialogue, too. So that, that was another thing that I thought was worth mentioning. But uh, no, I mean, you know, I'm still... I'm, I'm one of those people that, that gave up on writing for a long time. And so I, I was too focused on other things. And... Uh, I'm trying to get that back, but it's 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 a bit of a it's a bit of an uphill battle. Yeah, it comes and goes for me. Sometimes I've got 10k worth of words ready to go, and other times I'm just like, ah, I can't really think of what I want to do with it today, and I just don't do anything. Yeah, it's really better to have a regular schedule of doing things. Like it's not necessary, but you know, if I hadn't written some of the stories I wrote as slowly as I did, I don't think they would have come out as good. Yeah, like. The good guy happened over such a long period that I was able to add so many ideas into it that I, I, I don't know what level of narcissism this is, but I have read my own book at least 11 times now, and I enjoy it every time, so I, I don't know. Maybe it's because I have everything clearly in my head as I'm reading my own story. Some people tell me they read their own stuff, and it's just like, I can't read it again once I've written my story. I just, I, I gotta move on to the next thing. Yeah, except but, for that one. You know, I, I don't really know a lot of people <laughs> that write heavily action-based stories or, you know, lots of comedic dialogue between characters. That's my favorite thing to do, is to take characters and, like, they'll be friends, but I sort of pit them against each other in sure. contests of snarkiness. And, and I like to torture my characters, too. Like, I, I drive one character absolutely crazy throughout the course of a story because she can't talk. And so she can't really influence events around her, so she just has to take everything on its face. And they, they give her a nickname, they don't know her real name, so they're all calling her this nickname, it's just driving her crazy. Lots of, lots of stuff like that. And, you know, there's, there's times when you're not necessarily inspired by too much. I remember, uh, which character was it? It was a vampire from a video game that gave me the idea for another one of my characters in the book, and I just... It, it was just a silly idea, but it was like... It, it ended up creating this whole branch of ideas that flowed from it that, would, that just fit so perfectly into the story as I was writing it. It just... It, it was a gift that kept on giving. Yeah. So, you know, you know, never hesitate to use a stupid little detail as an inspiration for a character, because even if you don't know where you're going to go with that character, you'll find something as you're writing. Well, it's all about expansion. You know, you, you end up with, like, you start out with like this tiny little single idea, but then you just keep building new scaffolding on top of it. And yeah. it, it spreads out, it becomes its own thing. You know, that's, that's where things start to really get interesting because, you know, if you're just, if you're just doing a trope or if you're just copying something or, or you know, that's obviously not going to, 
not going to fly. But once you start putting your own spin onto it, you can go in a whole bunch of different directions, and that's where ingenuity, if any, if any is at hand, can uh, can do its thing. Yeah, I, I remember. Uh, you know, there was I needed a nickname for a character that was supposed to frighten a lot of people. Like there, I wanted to do a scene where a character shows up in a crowd and. It, it it's a scene where she's really changing the game up because mm-hmm. there's there's this hint that you know the the good guys are losing the fight and then this character shows up and some random person in the crowd that they're you know it's kind of like a a, a battle of one side versus another and one side has some generic soldiers that are just there fighting the the good guys and she shows up and one of the older soldiers in the opposing army remembers her as being a pirate. And, you know, it's just the stupidest little thing I could come up with. You know, there was the Scarlet Pimpernel, which is a story mm-hmm. I have never read. I know nothing about the Scarlet <laughs> Pimpernel. But I ended up, you know, her. she was a member of the Peril family. I ended up calling her the Scarlet Pin Peril. And that was her pirate name, and that was the name she was feared for. And yeah. uh, it was just a fun little scene to write, you know, give a character a little bit of, flesh them out a bit with a little detail like that. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 funny that that worked out that well. <laughs> yeah, it, it is, because I had the name Peril way before I thought of that, and I was just, I was trying to come up with a nickname, and, and I had already mentioned that she wore all red in the yeah. story earlier right. on. <laughs> and by the time I got around to needing that nickname, it was just like, oh, no way, this is perfect. <laughs> You know she's she's a fencer fights with a fights with a rapier and uh, it's, you know so she's basically carrying a giant pin around. She's the Scarlet Pin Peril. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. Sometimes you just gotta let the stuff fall into your lap like that. If you can be so lucky. I mean, it it seems to happen a lot though. I think that I I think that you've just got to be looking for it. Yeah, that's that. I mean, it's it's a question of having a wide enough because if because if you didn't know that story. You wouldn't. That wouldn't have fallen into your lap. Yeah, and that—that's the thing. That's another reason why I—I can't stress enough. Go out there and be entertained. Watch mm-hmm. things, read things, play video games, whatever your thing is. You know, read books on you know building guitars or whatever hobbies you have or whatever hobbies are interesting to you, but you don't actually partake of them. Read something about it. You know, see see what you can draw on. You know, later down the road, you might remember some little detail from ten years earlier that you never would have thought would have amounted to anything. Yeah, and it'll be sitting in the back of your mind, spinning around, and then suddenly it'll catch on something. Festering until it spreads like the disease it is. <laughs> well, that seems like a, like a, like a reasonable place to, to close yeah. our, our, our ideas on creativity. Festering disease. <laughs> <laughs> That's all that creativity amounts to. <laughs> Pretty much. Well, this this has been episode four of the Wordy Pair podcast. I'm Rudy. And Justin. And uh, yeah, we hope to... We like uh, stories and Rex Stout. We like stories and Rex Stout and other writers as well. And uh, yeah, thanks yeah, just, for listening. Just wait till they get us going on Umineko. Just you wait. Oh, goodness. Well, that'll... It'll be like it'll be like a four-hour episode. We will need five <laughs> episodes at least to cover that one. At least, I'll just bring out all my old old notes. Oh my goodness! Yeah, I, uh, oh my god! Oh, 
<laughs> that is actually a good idea. That might be something we have to keep in mind for the future. You bringing I'll put up it, the I'll, old Umineko notes. And I'll, us I'll just... put it in the list. It totally is a thing that I could do. I still have those notes. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for listening. Episode 4, Wordy Pair Podcast. We'll see you later. Later. for listening to the wordy pair podcast our passion is all things writing world building and getting into the weird and wonderful world of fiction we hope you enjoyed our unique takes if you did make sure to like rate review and subscribe to get your weekly dose of writing weirdness we'll be back soon but in the meantime hit us up on twitter for rudy it's at rudolph underscore cone and for justin at ninja mouse chew see you next time on the wordy pair podcast (laughs) 